0: Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to James chapter three, James chapter three. Uh, Today, we, we are in our fourth and final week of Missions and Mercy March, where we are looking at our two core values. We did two weeks on the core value of global missions, and we are finishing with two weeks on the core value of mercy and justice. Um, And kind of what we want to convey and want you all to uh, know and to walk away with is the conviction that uh, the core values of our church uh, should not just be the core values of our church. It should be the core values of those who are followers of Jesus. And so uh, as much as it would be uh, great to hear, oh, we we love that Cornerstone has these core values, uh, we would desire that you yourself as Christians would be burdened uh, by such uh, values as we Find them in God's word as they are truths of his heart revealed to us. Uh, Today we are looking at James chapter 3 for context. We're reading verses 5 to 12. uh, But the whole sermon is kind of a meditation on the whole book. And then toward the end, we will kind of focus on verses 9 to 10. Uh, And the sermon is entitled, Blessing Image Bearers. And so at this time, if you are able, I invite you to stand with me. Standing is an act of worship to read and receive God's word. James chapter 3, beginning with verse 5, reading the verse 12. Hear now God's word. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed. It has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does the spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. and Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that by your Holy Spirit's ministry among us and in us, that he would open our hearts to receive your word, to receive it beyond knowledge, but to receive it into knowledge of the heart, uh, which is transformation, it is conviction, it is resolve to respond, to obey, Lord, as it is our desire that not only with our minds we would worship you, but with our hands and feet we would bring you glory. So, Lord, speak to us this morning. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're looking at the epistle of James this morning, and James is one of the most practical, if not the most practical, New Testament book. In fact, in that way, James reads like no other letter in the New Testament. A few months ago, if you remember, we did a long fall series in Ephesians 1 where we basically said, hey, if you want to know the glorious expanse of our salvation, if you want to stand on the mountain peak and see the glories of your heavenly riches in Christ, then read Ephesians 1. But if you want to be punched in the gut if you want to be challenged about the seriousness of your Christian faith and discipleship, if you want to know what earthy, on-the-ground gospel living looks like, you need to read James. And that's because James pulls those punches. James makes contact, and then he follows through. And so with that, we're going to dive straight into our sermon this morning. Now, when we Open up the book of James in chapter one, he begins by giving us a very serious word. Uh, we read this in James 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, most people think uh, that they're worshipers if they come to church, they sit in a pew, they sing a few songs, and then they hear a sermon. You hear the sermon, receive the benediction, you leave, you go get lunch. And then you live the rest of your life until next Sunday morning rolls around. You lather, rinse, and repeat. And if this is you, James is saying to you this morning, you're not a worshiper. You're a deceiver. You've deceived yourself. You've tricked yourself into believing that you've come, you've heard God's word, and that's enough. You've lied to yourself. You've deceived yourself thinking that having heard God's word, you've done what the Lord requires. But James comes along and says, that's not it at all. You know what a true worshiper is? It's one who hears the word and does the word, responds to the word, lives out the word. Now, James doesn't let up at all. So he begins this way in chapter 1, verse 22. And then just a few verses later, he starts challenging the essence of true religion. Now, have you ever had a conversation with somebody and the fact that you come to church on Sunday mornings kind of came up and they said something like, oh, I didn't know you were religious. And that's often how people think about religion. They reduce religion down to a set of observances and duties. You go to church, you pray, maybe you read the Bible. That's what religion is. But James comes along and he redefines religion for us. He says in chapter 1, verse 27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion, James clarifies, is not just about what you say you believe. Religion is not just about coming to church, singing a few songs, engaging in a few religious activities. James says pure and undefiled religion, religion that actually honors God, involves two things. Two things. First, good works toward the least and the last. Religion is about good works toward the least and the last. Now, in the New Testament, chief among this group, the least and the last, chief among them were the orphans and the widows. And so true religion looks like mercy and justice toward those who can't help themselves, those who are powerless, those who are voiceless. And the second thing religion involves is living in such a way that you reflect not the world back to the world, but you reflect God to the world. You're living in such a way that's set apart and distinct, Personal holiness uh, is another way of putting it, unstained from the world. And so the truly religious do much more than put on Sunday best, show up to church and give God an hour or two of your week. The truly religious are those marked with concern and care and compassion to the least and the last, to those overlooked and neglected, ignored and forgotten. You know, true religion at the end of the day is being burdened by those with no position in power in society that they can't speak for themselves. They can't advocate for themselves. They can't defend themselves. This morning, James is getting you to ask this. Do I practice true religion? True religion. Or am I playing at this thing called Christianity? Just like little kids play house, are we playing church. You see, it becomes very clear. James is not preoccupied with pampering Christians. He's not just trying to get you to, to feel good. Oh, you did your QT four days in a row. Oh, good for you. Man, James is hardcore. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in a men's accountability group with James in it. All right. Every time you leave that morning breakfast, you just feel like an awful Christian. I just, man, I've not been doing anything right. But the thing is that that kind of conviction you feel when you read James is not because James is piling guilt upon you. James is not adding uh, legalistic laws and regulations and requirements for salvation. The reason we feel so burdened by James is simply because he's clarifying what real Christianity looks like. What it really means to follow Jesus. That a life of following Jesus means you don't merely hear the word, but that you do the word that real, pure, undefiled religion for God is caring about mercy and justice to the least and the last. And James goes on to say, you know what? If you are living life in this way, he says, you're being foolish. And he uses this illustration. He likens the man to this. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets. he was like saying this man is foolish somebody who hears god's words and doesn't do it they're a foolish person but then james ramps up what he's saying in chapter 2 because he's saying it's not only foolish for you to live that way but it's actually faithless now what do i mean by that well in james 2 we get this very famous portion of his letter where he writes this in verses 15 to 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now here James is saying that faith that is unaccompanied with works, actions, and good deeds is a dead faith. Because the evidence of living faith is works. Imagine for a second that you are a detective and you're called to a scene where you find a motionless body on the floor. What's the first thing you do? You go over to the body and you check for a pulse. You put your ear up to their chest, maybe to their nose to see if you can hear a breath. Why? Because the evidence of a living person is that they're breathing, is that they have a heartbeat. And James in this little section is teaching us basically to be spiritual medical examiners to test whether your faith is alive or dead. I think many of us in this room have become quite familiar with those at-home COVID tests. James is giving us an at-home faith test kit. And the thing about this faith test kit, is it's a lot less complicated than those antigen tests with all the swirling and the swabbing and the 10 seconds here and there. James is giving us a test. And he's saying, you want to know if you have living faith, true faith? Check the status of your works. If works are present, your faith is living. If works are gone, your faith is dead. It's a very sobering message that he brings to us. It's very interesting, though. When James talks about works, these works that you're supposed to have that prove your faith, I think a lot of us just kind of assume and we read into that what those works are. Oh yeah, if I have living faith, I should be reading the Bible more. If I have true living faith, I should be praying more regularly. If I have more living for true living faith, I should be attending church more faithfully. But that's not what James writes at all. What does he have in mind? What are the works? Well, go back and read it. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and all you say to them are well wishes, some nice words, I'll go and pee. So I really hope that you're warm tonight. I hope that somehow you can be filled. Well, I'm hungry. Well, be filled with the spirit. I mean, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You see, the works James is talking about aren't some kind of privatized thing between you and God. James isn't talking about your individual spirituality or the details of your personal piety and devotion. How long are you praying? How much of the Bible are you reading? Did you fast this day? Are you tithing? Are you giving? Are you attending church? Are you going to CG? Those aren't the works he's talking about. He's talking about loving concern and care and compassion for the least and the last in the world. He's saying, if you want to know if your faith is alive, do you have good works? And are they evidence toward the naked, the hungry, the poor? And he's making it very clear. Living faith is not only evidenced in words, but in works. I think a lot of us here think, well, I say the right words. I've confessed the right things. Isn't that evidence of living faith? And James comes along and he says, well, it's not works, not words, but it's words and works. Because we are Justified by faith alone. We believe that. But justifying faith does not remain alone. It never remains alone. And so just like James is clarifying, true religion is about caring for the poor, for the orphans, for the widows. So true faith is evidenced by caring for the destitute and the downtrodden. True faith is evidenced in abounding good work. Rich generosity toward those in need. This is the test. The question this morning is, how are you doing? How are you doing? Do you have true religion? Does your life exude true faith? So far in James, he's just told us what's important, but he actually hasn't told us why it's important. He hasn't really, really revealed the engine. And he begins to do that. Have you ever uh, watched on television uh, a, a car race? I don't understand how uh, so many people in, in this country like car races. But like the Indy 500, where cars just go around, 500 lamps. And these cars are going so fast, over 200 miles an hour. And if you're there, I mean, you hear and experience the power of these cars. Over 200 miles an hour, around and around for hours. They go constant rum, and the blast of wind hitting your face. That's what this is. And James is saying that the power of the Christian life at work is when you are doing these good works, when you are loving and caring for the poor. That's when the rubber meets the road. That's wheels on the pavement of the Christian life. But where does that power come from? Because we see the power in the Christian life when it's lived out this way, but where is that coming from? What's driving it? And so in chapter three, James actually opens the hood and he shows us because Uh, Maybe you've not been to a uh, car race, but have you ever been to a car show? If you go to a car show, how do these uh, places display the power of a car? Well, they don't put it on the track and drive it around in circles. What do they do? They put it on a stage and they pop open the hood. They show you the engine. This is where the power comes from. And that's exactly what James does in chapter three. He pops open the hood and he says, this is ultimately why you should care for the least and the last. This is why you should have a heart for mercy and justice. And the the, the truth of it is this, it's, it's very simple. What he says is every single human being, regardless of their status and station in life, is an image bearer of God. Why should you care about the least and the last? Why should you care about mercy and justice? Because every single human being is created in God's image and his likeness. If that's true, to dishonor the poor and the hungry is to dishonor God. The horizontal is tied with the vertical, and James won't let you separate the two. Now, when we get to James 3, we read it for the context sake, and it's about the use of the tongue. James is speaking about Christians and how we use our speech. And he says in verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of righteousness. Some of you have tongues like firecrackers. Verse 8, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison that your mouths are like that of a venomous snake. And you go, wow, okay, words are really important here. And yes, James is talking about the destructive power of the tongue, but then he actually hints at something much more foundational, something that's much more wrong with the picture here. And what James points out is actually the hypocrisy and the inconsistency that exists when you use your words to bless God and then you use your words to curse people that you use your words one way with God and another way with people. We read in verse nine, he says, with it, with your tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Now, the likeness of God here, by the way, is the imago Dei, it's the image of God. And that may sound familiar to you, the likeness of God, the image of God. And James here is referring back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and Genesis 1, verse 26, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This truth means that every single person is not only created by God, but every single person is created in God's image. Therefore, every human being reflects something of the beauty and the magnificence and the glory of the creator. You see, by virtue of bearing God's image, every human life possesses tremendous inherent value and worth and significance. And this is not because of what they do. It's simply because of who they are. This value, worth, and significance cannot be added to you. It cannot be accomplished. It cannot be accumulated. It's intrinsic. God has placed it in you. You and I and every human being is dignified because we're made in God's image. And if this is part of who we are, it's intrinsic and internal to us. It's inherent in us. Then that also means the image of God cannot be erased from out of you and that cannot be eradicated and taken from you. Listen, not even sin in all of its destructiveness and darkness can invalidate God's image in you. You cannot sin your way out of God's image. Which means then even the unbeliever, even the vilest of sinners is stamped with the signature of God. You know, in St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, uh, there is one of Michelangelo's greatest masterpieces. It's a uh, marble statue called uh, the Pieta. And the Pieta is a statue of uh, Mary who's holding her now uh, crucified uh, son, Jesus. And the reason that this is one of the most uh, unique paintings, one of his masterpieces, uh, it has this it's, it has this one feature. It's the only work of art that Michelangelo ever signed. It's the first and the last piece of art that he ever put his name to. Now, this was completed in 1500, and. Uh, interestingly, in 1972, uh, Vandal actually was watching the, uh, or came to see the Pieta, and when no one's looking, he was a geologist. He pulled out a geologist's hammer, and he just started whacking at the statue. I mean, he was a little unstable. He was declaring that he himself was Jesus risen from the dead. And so he was cracking, he was hitting this statue, and uh, he eventually got subdued and uh, you know kind of stopped, but uh, he was still able to, to take off uh, a chunk of Mary's nose, a bit of her Eyelid and one of her arms from the elbow down. So here was this great masterpiece now marred and broken. But here's a question What do you do with a work of art that's now imperfect, that's now blemished? What do you think the people in St. Peter's Basilica did? They didn't remove it, they didn't discard it, they didn't claim, oh, this no longer has any worth and value. Because even as marred and fractured as it was, it was still a masterpiece made by Michelangelo. It still had his signature on it. Now, in the same way, you and I, all of us have been ruined by sin. Sin has marred us. Sin has scarred us. Sin has disqualified us from God's blessing. Sin has qualified us for God's wrath. And yet, because humanity is made in God's likeness and image, because humanity is signed by its creator and its author, sin can only ever distort the image. It can never discard the image. And this is why James says, it is never right. Therefore, it is never right for you to curse another person. It is never right for you to treat or view somebody as less than you. And he calls that behavior out. Look at what he says in verse 10. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. It's out of God's good design for the world when people loosen what God has tied together. God has tied the vertical and the horizontal together. God has tethered our treatment of him and our treatment of others together. And therefore to bless God and to curse others is a contradiction. It's an offense against God. It's egregiously wrong. In fact, it's profoundly unchristian. To believe that God is worthy of my worship and then to believe that that homeless man on the corner is worthless Is so out of sync with reality that God calls it hypocrisy. He will not stand for it. He cannot let it go. And so if the two are tied and tethered together, so as we bless God, we bless others. So as we honor God, we honor others. Yes, even the least and the last in the world, especially the least and the last. And so then what is doing mercy and justice? What does it mean to have that as a core value? It means that you begin pursuing to bless every image bearer because their rights and their dignity are not in who they are, but in whose likeness they're made. And we work and we give and we pray to those who have nothing in the world. And that is nothing except the image of God. But that's enough because that's what matters most. And this is why true mercy and justice have at its aim the poor and the powerless the homeless and the hungry, the neglected and the naked, the orphans and the oppressed, the disadvantaged and disenfranchised, the vulnerable and the voiceless, the widows and the wounded, the unborn and the undeserving. To ignore, to overlook, to downplay, to dismiss. Those while honoring God is a great religious contradiction. And as James says, brothers, these things ought not To be so. But James goes on, and the gospel works in a mighty way because it's not just about an obligation. Oh, Christians, you should know this, and so act this way accordingly. No, there's something else at work here. Christians, then, not only have an obligation to live in this way, but Christians actually have the most compelling reasons to live such mercy-filled, justice-centered lives. And that's because the gospel transforms our lens so that we don't see the needy in the world as people less than us. We don't see the needy in the world as lazy people. We don't see the needy in the world as those leeches on society. No, we see those in the world as glorious divine image bearers. They were made by God. They were made for God. And that alone means they deserve our, accompli- our acknowledgement and our attention and our actions and our advocacy because the gospel transformed us. So when we look at people, we see that if God came after me to meet my greatest spiritual need and his great mercy, then how can I not go after them and meet their physical needs, their far lesser physical needs and mercy? I mean, if you really believe that the forgiveness of your sins is the greatest thing that God could have done to meet your spiritual need, then how in the world then are you going to look at others, see their physical needs and say, well, I'm not going to respond to that. The gospel actually transforms your heart. Because do you realize that when you and I were spiritually impoverished, God so generously gave us his one and only son? Do you realize that when you and I were voiceless against the oppressing evil one, Christ's blood spoke a greater word? That when you and I needed advocacy in our weakness, the Spirit interceded on our behalf with groans. When you and I were naked and hungry, God clothed us in robes of righteousness and invited us to the Feast of Heaven. When you and I were vulnerable and weak, the Good Shepherd laid down his life to defend us. When you and I were marginalized and sidelined, Christ came and he was not ashamed to call us his brothers when you and I were spiritual orphans, the spirit of adoption put the cry of Abba, Father, on our lips. You see, such gospel transformation gives us new eyes to begin to see the needs of mercy and justice in the world, and it prompts us to care, prompts us toward compassion, it prompts us toward concern. So we move out toward every image bearer with the desire to bless because we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Do we have eyes to see? Let me close with this illustration. Uh, Some of you know that uh, my parents for most of my life owned and operated a seafood store in Baltimore city. Uh, It was a fish store in one of the the city markets. Uh, Every evening they had the exact same routine. They got home at 7 PM. They ate um, dinner pretty late. And as soon as they ate, then they would go up to my dad's desk and they would count the cash that they collected that day. Every single day, year after year, the same thing. And here's what I learned and discovered pretty quickly. You may think that a smish fish uh, smells really bad, and it does. But do you know how nasty the smell of dirty, old, used money is? Have you ever smelled money that's just been handed and exchanged and has this distinct odor, this rotten odor telling you know, a million stories of every place it's been and every person who's handled it. And these old bills, sometimes they're so worn down, they're like holding tissue paper. They have no form because they've been folded and crumpled and they've been rolled up, they've been ripped, they've been taped back together. And so they, cr- they carry the, the grime and the stench of every exchange of hands they've ever gone through so sometimes my parents would ask, hey, can you help us? And I would not want to touch those bills. They were gross. Now, that kind of bill stood in stark contrast to the bills that my parents gave me every Sunday morning as a kid for Sunday morning offering. They would give me two crisp and clean, brand new bills. And I put that right in the envelope put that envelope right between the pages of my Bible and go to church. In so many ways, those bills were nice. They were pleasant. They were clean. They had the smell and the feel of newness. Let me ask you, which bill is more valuable? The one from the fish store or the one in the Sunday morning offering envelope? Well, it's a trick question. You don't know what's more valuable because it depends on whose image is on the bill. You see, the value of the bill has nothing to do with the condition of the bill, whether it's clean or dirty, whether it's put together or falling apart. What matters is, is the image of George Washington on it or is the image of Ben Franklin on it? That determines its worth and value. See, when the gospel renews your eyes and you begin looking at people, people can be Put together or they can be falling apart. People can be clean or they can be dirty. But what you see does not determine their value. What determines their value? The image that is on them. They are made in the image and the likeness of God, their creator. So this alone makes them valuable and significant, deserving to be treated with dig- dignity and respect and it's because of this that we begin to act mercifully and justly in the world on behalf of the least and the lost. We bless every image bearer. We heed the words of Proverbs 31, which says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously and defend the rights of the poor and needy. And this is not just a call for the church It's a call for all Christian disciples. And I hope that we begin to embrace these core values, not just corporately, but individually. You know, in just a short while, our Mercy Committee is going to come and give a presentation featuring two organizations that we support and partner with. Mana on Main Street, which is working to address the issues of hunger in the North Penn area and North Care Women's Clinic, which is working to address and walk with pregnant women so they don't believe that abortion is their only choice. Now, of course, there are many other organizations, causes, and programs that you can commit to, and these are the ones that our church have partnered with. But dear friends, as the gospel comes into your life, as it gives you eyes to see not only the obligation to do as God has called you to, but the desire to compel you to go out, may we continue to live lives that seek mercy and love justice and seek to care for the least and the last in the world. And in that way, to follow Christ and to exhibit his heart. Let's pray.